Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Pam Canty, and uh, I have served as a woman shepherd here for years, and um, am very, very blessed to be part of the Sardis Road Community Group. We meet uh, nearly every Sunday night at six o'clock for prayer and fellowship and studying and leaning into each other about how to live humbly and with courage in a country and a world that's so divided and live out our faith. So if that sounds interesting to you, please find me. We are in, like I said, Sardis Road area. But please connect to some, some community group, get community. It's just such a life stream, lifeblood of the church to have small group community here. So I couldn't plug anything more. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Amos chapter 3. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Does a lion ever roar in a thicket without first finding a victim? Does a young lion growl in its den without first catching its prey? Does a bird ever get caught in a trap that has no bait? Does a trap spring shut when there's nothing to catch? When the ram's horn blows a warning, shouldn't the people be alarmed? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, so who isn't frightened? The sovereign Lord has spoken. So who can refuse to proclaim his message? Announce this to the leaders of Philistia and to the great ones of Egypt. Take your seats now on the hills around Samaria and witness the chaos and oppression in Israel. My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. Therefore, says the sovereign Lord, an enemy is coming. He will surround them and shatter their defenses. Then he will plunder all their fortresses. This is what the Lord says. A shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from a lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. So it will be for the Israelites in Samaria lying, lying on luxurious beds and for the people of Damascus reclining on couches. Now listen to this and announce it throughout all Israel, says the Lord, the God of heaven's armies. On the very day I punish Israel for its sins, I will destroy the pagan altars at Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground, and I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their winter mansions and their summer houses too, all their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Morning. As always, uh, when you read through prophets, you just realize how uplifting this can be, right? Isn't it? Um, and you, you're pumped to listen to the Word of God this morning. Amen? Amen. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here. We continue our sermon series in 12 Minor Prophets, and we're in the second part of three-part Amos uh, Minor Prophet. 
And if you're here with last week, we realized that Amos, the prophet, was given one of the most impossible tasks ever given. And you just read it today, too, where he's to preach against peace and prosperity of a nation. When things are going well for them, um, there's a judgment that is to come. In the words of, in the fall season as it comes, in the world of sports, we often see bandwagon fans rise all the time. Whether it's a recent success of a team or the cool factor being associated with a certain franchise comes to mind, well, without trying to offend you all, it may be some of your, the newly acquired University of Georgia football fans. Yeah. Yes, there are some, they're genuine, but there are also those who recently got on after winning back-to-back championships. Maybe they were once the Alabama fans, the Clemson fans, the LSU fans of the past, are now the University of Georgia fans. For you soccer fans, it may be the Manchester City fans, who once were the fans of Manchester United, uh, or Chelsea, or you name it. I know there's some groanings here, right? Because you know that you are the true fan if you know the history of the pain that existed before all the success. Some of you may be Stephen Curry's fan and don't know what the Golden State Warriors existed before uh, with the existence of Run DMC or even We Believe Warriors, right? Or many of you would say are now the fans of Kansas City Chiefs on the heels of Taylor Swift going to the games, right? Maybe that's what we call bandwagon fans, and we often partake in it as well for various reasons, and oftentimes it's the benefit of winning, as well as the pressure to conform with the winning side. After all, we're in a culture, or dare I say, humanity as a whole, creates success and fortunes and the benefits that come with that. But what is missing with this bandwagon fan? That's why we call it bandwagon fans, is because of the history. Oftentimes, the most painful and shameful history that are associated with the team that you love, basically, it points to the lack of depth of relationship through thick and thin. Bandwagon fans are disliked oftentimes because they come around only when there's prosperity and success, and often are associated with empty rituals and no real connection and the meaning of things. Although this analogy is absolutely flawed in many ways, I acknowledge that, but there are some aspects that are similar when it comes to being associated sometimes with the church. Bandwagon faith there I say empty religion, um, is often rampant. Sometimes we will call this cultural Christianity, where so many people practice Christian religion without genuine relationship with Christ at heart. For some of us that have grown up in the church, we may have wondered, as we have participated in the rhythms of the life of the local church, we wonder secretly inside, why and what is all this for anyhow? All this worship services, the mission trips, the volunteering opportunities, and we wonder at the heart of it, what is in the middle? What is at the heart of those things? For some of us that have not been in church or here because of your curiosity of who Christ is, we welcome you. Perhaps what you drew you towards church was the curiosity of this Christ figure, but sometimes what draws you away from church is the notion that Christianity seems so fake. One can claim much on Sundays, but their lives do not reflect any of those changes Monday through Saturday. It seems empty at its best. That's why I believe today's message from Amos 
that as we will cover Amos chapter 3 to 6, is not just a message for Israelites, not just a warning for them back in the days, but it is also a warning message for all of us as we gather to worship the Lord. Following the warnings to the six nations, starting with chapter 2, now Amos the prophet focuses on Israel and Judah, God's chosen people. And what we'll see in these next three chapters that we'll cover today is that Amos the prophet speaks to empty practices of religion of the Israel, and they say, you're doomed because there's no, there's no God at the center of your empty rituals and all that you do. And the question that we have to ask is, what makes an empty religion? What makes it an empty religion according to Amos? And two things we'll see is that empty religion often is, in, um, is found in the absence of God. And second, empty religion has the absence of the other. Empty religion has the absence of God, and empty religion has the absence of the other. Remember, this one particular day, as I was driving home from work, I realized it was way too late. I was almost on my way home, about to turn into my neighborhood, when I realized, oh no, it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> and I forgot. So what did I do? As a good pastor, I began to think of the real reason behind Valentine's Day and how it is a day to honor St. Valentine, uh, the person that was martyred for performing weddings for young couples out of conviction when marriage was outlawed by Claudius the emperor because he wanted unmarried soldiers. Surely, if I just explain spiritual reasons why we should rather spend our time meditating on the life of St. Valentine instead of honoring my wife, she was surely accepted, right? That's what Christians are allowed to do. Can I get an amen? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. I didn't do that. Um, I, what I did was I did a sharp U-turn and headed to the first grocery store I could find. And of course, it was the Whole Food, otherwise known as Whole Paycheck. And I grabbed what I can afford from that store, a single stem rose, and I jolted out. Church, what is missing in that? As you many would say, I'm missing the heart, the main person that you ought to celebrate in the day. At the heart of empty religion of Israelites, the main thing is missing. And that's what Amos is pointing out. And Amos makes that point by once again pointing to Israelites, to their origin and the heart of what it meant for them to be Israelites. Amos chapter 3, what we read, it says, Listen to this message from the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued out of Egypt. From among all the families of the earth, I have been intimate with you and you alone. This is why I must punish you for all your sins. What Amos is here saying is the charge I bring against you, the nation, First and foremost, it is the Lord Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, who have spoken against Israel. Second, it is the Lord Yahweh who have chosen Israel to rescue them. Third, it is the Lord Yahweh who has given special privilege of entering into this relationship, binding relationship with one another. So from the onset, what we see is at the heart of this discourse, this message from Amos to Israelites, is that there's a broken relationship here. There's a brokenness here because Israelites has forgotten who rescued them and who entered into relationship with them and what makes them special, not who they are, but who God is. Worse yet, it does not merely end at the charge that there is a broken relationship here. It is so broken in the fact that the Israelites has consistently neglected God's call to come back to him again and again and again. And we read that throughout chapter 3, but in chapter 4, we see this again. God sending signs and prophets time and time again to tune of the empty ears. 
Amos chapter 4, 6 says, I brought hunger to every city and famine to every town, but you still will not return to me, says the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, I kept rain uh, I kept the rain from falling when your crops needed it the most. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from the other. In chapter 4, verse 9, I struck your farms and vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured all your figs and olive trees, but still you will not return to me. Chapter 4, verse 10, I sent plagues on you. Like the plagues I sent to the Egypt long ago, I killed your young men in war, but still you will not return to me. Chapter 4, verse 11, I destroyed some of your cities. I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but still you will not return to me, says the Lord. And as a result of this consistent denial of returning to the Lord, this is what God says in chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I have announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. So what is the judgment that is coming? First is the physical imminent threat from the north. As you recall, Amos is speaking of the time of prosperity when Israel's borders were extended uh, beyond and they, they experienced relative peace at the time. But Amos says, well, that is about to come to an end. Amos chapter 6, verse 14, he says, O people of Israel, I'm about to bring an enemy nation against you, said the Lord God of heaven's armies, that will oppress you through your land from Libel, uh, Hamath in the north to the Arabah Valley in the south. Chapter 5, verse 25, 27, was it to me that you're bringing these empty sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness Israel? No, you served your pagan gods. So in verse 27, it says, so I will send you into exile to the land east of Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God of heaven's armies. And we see this coming to fruition. Assyria comes to power again under Tigler, um, Pelasher, the third, and destruction of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, happens in 740 B.C. But that's not all. There's deeper layers to this punishment that is to come, worse than the physical exile that is about to happen. This is what God says to them in Amos chapter 6, that God will now turn away from them. Chapter 6, verse 14, O people of Israel, I'm about to bring an enemy nation against you, says the Lord God of heaven's armies, they will oppress you through and through. They will send, I will send you into exile. Going into exile means there's a severed relationship and God will hand you over to your sin. Here, when they talk about level Hamath of the north, it is a confidence of Israelites in their defense strategy. This was a place where they felt like they could hold their own against enemy armies. When they talk about Arab Valley in the south, that's a Zion, Jerusalem, where it was stationed at. Their confidence was in the fact that, well, we're a chosen nation. Thinking, hey, well, we're covered here. Not only were they self-reliant in their own self-knowledge, as well as they were reliant upon their legacy. Thinking, well, I got this because my family lineage, I'm chosen. But both of these cities are going to face doom. At the heart of it is God turning away from God's people. Church, you know what is the end result of sin? What is most devastating about sin? I think we often mistaken calamity and destruction. In another word, circumstances, they go, they go uh, not our way. The conflicts in life, the relationships that happen, the broken relationship, we often see that as the end result. Those are, in fact, sometimes can be a result of sin. 
Not always, but sometimes this can be a result of sin. But quite oftentimes, those calamity, those struggles, those broken relationships are often used by God and allowed by God at times so that you and I could see the need of God in our life. Do you notice that? Sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives, the brokenness that abounds around us, not as a direct punishment for your actions per se. Sometimes there are, but those things are used so that you could see, man, I need God. I need to run to the Lord. It's almost like if you're sick, you got to run to ER. You got to go see a doctor. There's no way if you're sick, you're thinking, oh, I got to go to Walmart today because I got to just figure this on my own, right? Even the most... um, of, uh, the hospital verse people, we will go to WebMD and try our best, and doctors, you will groan, right? Like, no, no, come to the expert. Those things happen. What is most devastating thing about sin is oftentimes when in our sin, the end result, the most devastating effect of sin is when we're left to indulge in sin. When we're given into our own defenses and our own self-correction, our own self-reliance, often in isolation away from God's community, That's the most scary part of our sin. When we run away from God rather than towards God, once again revealing empty religion, absence of very existence of God itself, after all, sin's end says, I do not wish to be with God. Oh, Church of Christ, where are you in your journey with the Lord? We often find people gathering around the church of people in the joyous times, but all the more so, through the difficult times, through the journeys of values, the shadow of death, that's when God beckons you even closer to him. Are you a sick patient who will run to ER or urgent care running towards God? Or are you slowly and surely headed away from God, revealing that it was, after all, an empty religion in your heart? Oh, Church of Christ, may we turn to him as he chases after us. Amen? Not only the empty religion reveals the absence of God, also the empty religion shows the absence of others. Absence of others. As I was heading home with a single stem rose, thinking, I got this. I got this down. Little to my knowledge, about two miles from my house, there was another man who thought long and hard about how to show love the only woman in his life. He began to ponder all the ways he could show that love for this woman, So he decided to write, I love mommy, and drew stick figures and showed him mommy and him hugging together. And he neatly folded that into a nice ball of crumpled paper and brought it home and gave it to her and said, I love you. What was well received? Definitely not whole paycheck flower because it was absence of what's most important. But what was treasure in the heart? was this crumpled piece of paper that had everything in it. Presence of the other person's thought in the heart of the person creating it. You know, more than any other book in the scripture, the book of Amos, especially in the Old Testament, book of Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. Why? Because empty religion, that is absence of God, is often seen in the absence of others in one's life. And we saw this briefly in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 last week in God's indictment against Israel's prosperity on the backs of the poor and the hopeless. This is what the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. 
I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver, the poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the press out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing, dead or put up as security. In the house of their God, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. Israel's sin is highlighted in selling off of needy people, exploiting them, taking advantage of the helpless, oppressing the poor, abusing women at the heart of their religious practices. In line of this, Prophet Amos expounds on the absence of others, absence of neighbors in the empty religious practices of the Israelites. Amos chapter 3, verse 10, this is what God says, doesn't he? My people have forgotten how to do right. Thus says the Lord, their fortunes are filled with wealthy taken by theft and violence. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is what God says, Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. And God is very graphic and direct. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and who are always calling to your husband, bring us another drink. Chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, you trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes on fair rent. It's home, doesn't it? Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins, the depth of your rebellions, and this is what God says. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. This is in the scripture, guys. Amos chapter 8, verse 4. Listen to this. You who rob the poor and trample down the needy, you can wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festival to end so you can get back to your cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measure, cheat the buyer with dishonest scales, and you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you slay poor people from one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. In concluding this sentiment, one commentator writes, drunk on their own economic success and intent on strengthening their financial position, Israelites lost their concept of caring for one another. In light of this, this is what God says as Israelites are gathered to worship the Lord. Mind you, there were worship happening during this time, oftentimes more elaborate than you and I could have ever imagined and this is what God tells them in chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noise hymn of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. Again, this is what Old Testament prophets show us, what the apostles in the New Testament echoed and what Jesus taught the disciples. That if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, you cannot help but to love others. The evidence of your love for God is shown in your love for one another. Empty religion is easily identified when you lack the love for others around you. And, oh, church, how easily it is for us to fall into this trap. How often we fall into focusing on what we do rather than what we become. It becomes what happens when Sunday is so much more important when everything happens, but then every day nothing is happening. It's about when we get what we want and what we learn is so much important, more so than how God is transforming our lives. It becomes when we 
do keep, and we do our best to keep people out of the church rather than making places so that people can be invited to hear the word of God. It becomes when we, in our fear, want to get our religious practices correct down to the T, the songs we sing, theology, all those things we check off, but oftentimes it lacks love, and we often discriminate based on the color of the skin of those, the choices that people make. It's when it becomes all about what we get right, more so than who do we love and how do we love one another. Church, what do you think is the greatest hindrance in your personal journey and your relationship with God? Think about it for a second, right? Oftentimes, the names of the people will come to your mind. Oftentimes, your circumstances may come to your mind too, the hardships that bring into your life. But you know what? Again, as we see this, people that give you a hard time, circumstances that throw us, hey, and I, I do not, I dare not say those are uh, not important. They are. But oftentimes, those things are used by God, again, to reveal to us who we are, Amen. our character. Because God is after our character. Amen. After all, it's not a matter of what you can do for me lately, but what God is focused upon is our character. Our biggest hindrance in your personal journey with God is your sin. Amen. It's our sin. And God is in serious business of changing us, pointing that out and saying, this is sin. Turn away. Circumstances, people, trials, and hardships. Yes, God is in control. In the midst of all that, God is saying, come back to me. Come back to me. And that's what we see again in chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. And this is what the Lord, God of Israel, tells the Israelites. And now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. And as if God knows, Israelites will say, okay, 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 I got it, I got it. Let me do all these empty rituals. This is what God says in chapter 5, verse 5. Don't worship at the pagan altars of Bethel. You know, Bethel was a place where God was supposed to be. If you go to Genesis chapter 28, this is where God gives promise to patriarch Jacob. It's a holy place. But now this place gets corrupted by Jeroboam I as he set golden calf in this holy place. God also tells them, don't, for the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile. You know, Gilgal was a place where the Israelites first crossed into Jordan. This was a historic place. This is where God says, I will send and I'll be with you. This is a place where they erected a monument, consecrated themselves as God's elect. But once again, without God, it was just mere religion. And it says, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. You know, Bethel or... Um, Bethel, yeah, we talk about Bethel, Beersheba, right? Beersheba, this is a sacred place that was associated with the very root of the nation. It figures into the life of each of three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, in the, each instant, God promised to be with the person involved in those three places, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba. But God says, don't go there. Don't even worry about those places. Why? Because this herein lies God's plea of grace. Well, God is saying, do not merely get stuck on external actions of the religion, even the historic, even the past, glorious places and practices even. Because at the heart of what it means to follow God, to love God and to be in relationship with them, wasn't a place, wasn't merely a practice, wasn't even a land of in itself, but it is the very presence of God with people of God. And the word of God that dwell with God's people, even as when they went through the uh, the desert, 
even to the values of shadow of death, the reason why Israelites were special, why they were chosen, why they were headed to the land of Canaan, was not necessarily because they have all these things figured out, because simply God's presence was with them. And this is why God says, he doesn't say, come back to the temple. He doesn't say, go to church. He says, come back to me. Be with me, back into my hands of relationship, into my arms. And church, I believe this is the same message for us this morning. And this is the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God calls you, all of us this morning, back into his presence. It's not about attend church at all costs, nor even do all that you used to do in college or mission trips. And now with all your kids, you still sacrifice. That's not what God is saying. But rather, he's saying, come back to me. Especially in our circumstances, relationship conflicts, in the heat of the battle, God, we orient our gaze upon him and ask, come back, my sons and daughters. I want to be in relationship with you. Forget about, stop being lingering upon empty religious practices, but know that I am here with you so the watching world will know it is God, not who we are, gives Christianity its hope and the message of God's love. So church question is, how do we do this well? How do we do this well? I remember when my son was in his preschool, as we walked into the preschool, they had this model called Head, Heart, Hands. This age-old 3H model proposes that any effective teaching or learning starts with head as essentially responsible for imparting knowledge, heart that inculcates the individual, the values, the sense of appreciation, the hands, the component encourages the active involvement during teaching and learning activities. And why do I talk about head or hands? Because oftentimes, I think in Christianity, we are so focused on the head. Right? As long as I get this somehow, if I get the right doctrine in my mind, somehow it will come here. And somehow it will come here. And that's what we want to do. Some of the younger uh, generation, not all, and I think sometimes teenagers, you want this. You want the genuine feelings, infection, the conviction of the heart first. Again, not a wrong thing. And oftentimes they translate into heads and go into actions with hands. Even younger generation than that often want hands first to see the action in play that becomes the conviction of the heart, not that makes sense in your head. What's right? All of them, right? Isn't it? Sometimes as we serve with our hands, as we see the evidence of God's grace work, it becomes our conviction and makes sense in our mind. Sometimes God's got to change your heart and see the effect of grace in your life, and that becomes the action as well as conviction and the change of your perspective. Sometimes it is true that we must have correct teaching given to us so that we feel com- we have the conviction from the Lord with changing our heart. The most important thing of all those things is the fact that God had to be involved in it by urging us to live out our lives in faithful obedience to the Lord, by giving us conviction in our hearts, by transforming power of the gospel, giving, renewing our mind with the gospel that illuminates our life. And that is the hope that you and I have. That's why it's important for us to gather to worship. That's why it's important for us to serve one another. That's why it is important for us to receive right teaching. And teenagers, I know you're sitting here, and sometimes it is more interesting, the colors and the patterns of the floor, than what the pastor has to say. I get it. I've been there. We understand that. But as you participate in the life of the church, what we want to share is not merely that we want you to just do the empty practices of religion, but what we want is to see life of people changed by the gospel, first and foremost, your parents, but the people around you that gather here on Sunday, making a Sunday worship priority above all else. 
because we say God is most important in our lives. And that's what we want to be as a church. Amen? And we rely on the gospel of grace to change our lives, to live out in loving God and loving others. And that is what it means to be captured by his grace, to live for the Lord. Church, in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, is famously, one of the most famously quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech. As he famously declared in the face of injustice, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And those words echo throughout generations. This great theologian also wrote following words in April 16, 1963, what is titled, Letter from Birmingham Jail. And this is what he wrote. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for 20th century Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. You know, the audience of this letter was not the religious and the political extremes at the time. This was not written to the head of KKK. This was not written to those who are burning and bombing black churches or lynching black folks. The focus of this rebuke and challenge was towards the white, moderate churches. Churches. Whose actions did not match what they said or what they say they believe in, the love of God for their neighbors, or their inaction in the face of injustice was at the hand, at the heart of this message. And I believe we can all agree this continues to today because those younger people in 1963 are now the older people. And the latest I checked we're still faced with the same dilemma of this new generation of young people that are disappointed with the church that has turned away into outright disgust. In the era of political turmoil, filled with false Christian nationalism, rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans, anti-Semitism, indifference towards migrant crisis, sexual and spiritual abuse at the hand of the church leaders, do justice and righteousness roll in our churches today? Are we known by how our church is marked by how much we love the people that God has called us to love? Are we merely stuck on getting the right songs in order, right theology in place? Is that the church of God? Worship that does not connect you to God is worthless. Religious practices and spiritual formation without spirit of God is powerless. Sacrifice without love is senseless. And may I add, loving God without loving our neighbor is godless. Simple idolatry. Church, that's why I love that we're in this together. I think we start here. One of our community engagement team members shared her heart with the team this week. And I love what she shared. I got this permission from her. In the short video, the sister basically said, hey, we've done this research and we got vast amount of needs do you know that? When you come to Christ Central, one thing you realize is, man, people are different, right? And I'm not comfortable. What a beauty of that. There are different needs, different desires all over, different opinions, thoughts, and needs, even in how we've got to reach this city. In light of all this, which can be overwhelming, this is what she said. She said, John chapter 17, 
the beauty and the unity and diversity because God brings us together. Church, that is the beauty of the gospel. At the heart of what it means to be a church, together to love God and to love one another, I believe that's what you and I are called to. This is Christ-centered church. This is your testimony, my testimony. This is our story, our hope, our witness to the watching world. Amen? And for those that do not know Christ this morning, I pray that you will know Christ a bit more as you hear the word of God preached, but see God's people loving one another. We hope the gospel of Christ is shared by our love for God and for others. Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we, as we head into the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we pray that for ourselves as we gather to worship this morning, that despite what seemingly insurmountable odds that are stacked up against the gospel, we know the gospel prevails. Despite our sin that easily entangles us, we know that we have hope because not in what we can do, the right things that we can say or do, but ultimately in Christ who changes us. This table represents that. Father, we come with the humble heart and spirit. We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.